All right. Well, I just want to remind you, church, that if you have any burning questions during Sean's awesome message today, right, um, he's, he's going to speak some good stuff today. Um, we have a number that you can text. And, and yeah, no pressure, right? Um, that you can text, and if you have any questions, it's a nominate, a non, that's a hard word to say. We don't know who you are. Um, that's the easier way to say that, right? Um, so we will um, be able to answer all those questions at the end of this mini series. Um, so feel free to text that number, um, take a picture of it if you need to do that now. Um, but uh, before Sean comes up here and um, gives us today's um, message. I want to read the scripture for today. Today's message is found in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. It will be up on the screen. If you have a paper Bible, that's awesome. Go ahead, follow along. If you need to close your eyes, it's always good to just close your eyes and not get distracted and just let the word of God soak into our lives. Here we go. Verse 1. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. This is the word of the Lord. That's good. Well done, Tyler. And uh, happy Sunday, everybody. How we doing? Yeah? That good, huh? All right. Sweet. Uh, very excited. We've, we've just in an exciting season of our church. Um, it's good to be Together in person, online, wherever you're at, uh, it's good to be together. And exciting season with baptisms coming up next Sunday, huh? Yeah? One person's excited. That's good. Got a woo-woo for baptisms. Uh, Easter's coming, all this stuff. And, uh, and over the course of this year, we're looking at First and Second Corinthians, these two longer letters of the New Testament that Paul writes to a church in Corinth, and a church that he planted himself and then couldn't be there all the time, and he writes these two letters, and, and because it's such a long passage uh, of Scripture, we're, we're breaking it up into these mini-series, and so right now we're spending three weeks looking at what does Paul say about money, and uh, I, I, I love that, of course, as we are doing this little mini-series on money, uh, I see a lot of new faces, and I'm sure you're excited to be at church and be here, and we're going to talk about money, and you're like, great, this is awesome. Uh, but uh, you know what? I, I want to lead with today's main idea. Jesus doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Jesus doesn't need our money. Does, does the God of the universe need my savings account to do what he wants to do? No, he doesn't need it. Because then it would mean that God is limited to me and what I can do for him. No, God doesn't need my money. Jesus doesn't need my money. But Jesus wants my heart. And what Jesus began to unpack in his teaching when he talked about money quite a bit was he found the, the connection between our heart and our pocketbook. I, I don't have a pocketbook. So uh, my heart and my checking account. <laughs> All right? I don't even know. A uh, pocketbook just, yeah. Anyways. I don't even use a checkbook. Anybody still rocking a checkbook today? Man, good for you. Three of you. We got more for checkbooks than water baptisms. All right. Woo. Ah, Jesus wants my heart. 
And Jesus understood that my heart is intertwined with my money, and my money is intertwined with my heart. When he says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is, meaning that wherever my priority is, wherever my treasure is, whatever's most important to me, well, that's where my attention's going to be. That's where my focus is going to be. That's where I'm at. And I've heard pastors say that you could look at your checkbook, you could look at your calendar, and you will know who your God is. And it, it's, it's kind of a, a, a pointed statement, but it, it makes a lot of sense. If I look at where my time is going and I look at where my money is going, I would clearly identify who my gods are. Yes, I serve Jesus, but I also serve gods of streaming services. Anybody else serve at the altars of streaming services, all 97 of them? Just because they put plus at the end, I got to pay for it now. Money can become our master. And Jesus understood this idea that if I don't use my money as a possession, it will begin to possess me. Or I will turn money not just into my master, I'll turn it into a, into a trophy. And instead of being a tool, my money becomes a trophy where I use my money for validation and satisfaction and my identity is all wrapped up into my trophies, if you will. And our heart during this series is to understand that, that I don't want Jesus to have to compete for my heart. Jesus wants my heart. Jesus wants your heart. And, and he wants our devotion and my identity and my validation and uh, my validity. It needs to all be wrapped up with Jesus and not competing with these other things in my life. And, and so Jesus is teaching us about money. Paul is teaching the Corinthian church about how they view their money and developing a, a, a sense of generosity, right? And, and I heard one pastor talk about this. If you want to combat materialism and greed and, and self-sufficiency, uh, start with generosity. In fact, he's, I listened to one pastor. He said, you want to give greed a black eye? Be generous. Right? If you identify that in yourself, and nobody's going to walk around like, I'm a greedy person. But if you began to notice materialism and self-sufficiency and greed and, and the desire for more, more, more and selfishness, uh, generosity is going to combat that. And so last week we talked about generosity and the generosity of God. This was our starting point last week, is that God is a generous God. We worship and follow a generous God. Not a stingy God, not a frugal God. We worship a generous God and that everything that we have is a gift from God. And a generous God wants his people to be generous. That if it describes him, he wants it to describe us, right? A generous God wants his people to be generous. And so last week we tried something really exciting and we handed out these envelopes. And if you missed last week, I, I still have some more if you'd like to participate. Last week we handed out these envelopes and gave everyone a generosity challenge. And inside these unmarked envelopes is a, is a certain random amount of cash. And, and the idea was to take that money, which is a gift. No one is entitled to the contents of these envelopes, right? This is a gift. And you take this gift, whatever amount it is, and you go and you do something with it. Go do something to bless someone and do something good and, and, and meet a need or, or bring, uh, bring some joy into somebody's moment and just let them know uh, that God sees them and God is with them and, and you are with them and, and bless somebody with it, right? And it was really cool. We handed out, uh, I believe, about uh, 65 of these envelopes last week. Stories are starting to trickle in, examples of what people are doing. And, and keep telling those stories. Keep sending them in. Inside there is a card for how you can tell your story. You can write it on the back and put it in the box or, or 
submitted electronically. So tell those stories. If you didn't get an envelope, come see me today after service up front. I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. Because we want everybody to begin to view not just this envelope as a gift, but if I can view this as a gift, man, what happens if I view everything as a gift? All of my money, all of my stuff, all of my things, all of my time, every breath that I have, every day that I have is a gift. Well, I'm going to treat it differently because it's a gift, not something I'm entitled to and something I'm earning. And I'm going to learn that a generous God wants me to be generous. And so we answer kind of the why behind that generosity and where it stems from. But how do we do that? How do we cultivate a lifestyle of generosity? Right? It's, how do we begin to live that out? And I, I picture as this, this passage that we're reading, I picture Paul just sitting with the Corinthians at Starbucks just talking. And he's talking about all these different things. And in this one passage, I just see him get into the very practical nitty-gritty of it. And we start in chapter 16, verse 1, when he says this. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. He's answering a question. Because people have heard this money is being collected for these Christians that aren't in their neighborhood. They're far, far away in Jerusalem. And they're over in Greece and Corinth. And I'm wondering, like, well, why do I got to get this money? And what's it for? And how are you doing this? And what's going on? And how do I get this money? You know, whatever questions may be provoked. This is Paul's Q&A text line. See, it's biblical. Ask questions. But he's answering these questions, and, and what he's trying to help them see is this idea of these principles, these concepts, these practices that he wants them to get. And what does he say? He says, well, you should follow the same procedure I have given the churches in Galatia, right? Do the very same things I've been telling other churches to do. All over these regions, as he's traveling from region to region to region, he's telling people, this is how you give, this is what generosity looks like. He's saying, put this stuff into practice. That's where I see Paul's just sitting there, and he just, hey, can we get into the nitty-gritty on how to do this? And I, 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 in looking at this passage and, and studying this, I began to realize as Paul was kind of mentoring me through his writing, generosity doesn't just happen on accident. Generosity it takes discipline. It's, it's, a, it, it's a muscle, a spiritual muscle that we develop. It's kind of like riding a bike. Is anybody born knowing how to ride a bike? Raise your hand if you just, out of the womb, knew how to get those pedals moving. Anybody? No. We all had to learn how, and we all wobbled our way through it and, and figured it out. Training wheels and mom and dad holding the back of your seat and all these things and skin knees and falling and pedaling and go faster, go faster. We all had to learn, right? And we all, it, nobody just knew how to do it instantly. Well, nobody just instantaneously out of the womb knows how to be generous because every child does what? Their first word is not mama and dada, it's mine, right? We need to be taught how to be generous. But it doesn't just stop with, oh, I'm done with my training wheels. We want to live this lifestyle of generosity. How do we develop that lifestyle? You know, I know how to ride a bike, but I'm training. For those that don't know, I like to ride my bike because running is terrible. Yes, it is. Running is the worst. It is, uh, it, it is a discipline that is from the devil. Uh, I like to ride my bike, and I signed up. I signed up for a bike ride this summer, and I'm going to ride 200 miles in two days. We're going to go from Seattle to Portland. And, woo, yes, Bobby's going with me. Uh, he doesn't know what he's in for yet. And we went on this, uh, we're, we're training for these bike rides, and it's 200 miles in two days. And I took my bike into the bike shop over by Costco, and they put me up on this mount. This is not a picture of me, by the way. 
uh, for those that don't know me super well. But I got on this, this training bike, and I brought my bike in, and they mounted it up, and they just st started having me pedal. And I thought I knew how to ride a bike. And this guy just, like, warped my world. Uh, he, he pointed out how my foot angle was when I started pedaling. He, he put foot inserts into my, my cleats that I wear that clip in. He changed my handlebar positioning. He changed my seat, took the seat, and gave me a different seat, right? Which is funny with bike seats. The more money you pay, the less seat you get. But he put me on this seat, and now I'm not moving around on it. I'm just, uh, I'm stuck in it. I'm in the saddle, as they say. That's a bike term, I guess. I thought I knew how to ride a bike. And this guy was, I mean, yeah, all these tools and mechanisms to measure things and all of this. And he's sitting there, and he's like, all right, now you're ready to go ride your bike. I'll tell you what, my speed has increased. My, my endurance has increased. And it's because I want to be able to do the 200 miles without destroying myself, right? And I want to live after the race. And I picture Paul sitting with us out in the bike shop, just across from the table saying, hey, how do we develop a lifestyle of generosity? How do we not just give sporadically? How do we not just give when, when you know, they play the right music and show the right sad face on the screen? How do we live a lifestyle of generosity to where my heart is willing to give it all away for Jesus? Because it is a developed discipline. No one just instinctually becomes generous. No one accidentally starts tithing. And so Paul is sitting with us and showing us, this is what will stir us towards a life of generosity. And he gives us some very practical steps. And whether you've been generous for a long time, or you're just starting to dabble in generosity, or you don't even want me to talk about money, and this is really making you uncomfortable. I pray that today challenges all of us in the room and all of us watching online to continue to understand what does it mean to be a generous person. And the beauty of what Paul wrote is it's very practical, and the Holy Spirit was in it because all of my points alliterate, and they all start with the letter P. So here we go. Here's the first one. I'm joking. It doesn't well, they do alliterate, but it doesn't mean it's more divine. The first one is that it's prioritized. Verse 2 is a small statement, but there is a lot packed in this sentence. And we're going to read just a little bit of it. On the first day of each week. On the first day of each week. It is a priority that on the first day of each week. Paul's answering their question about money and generosity and giving to Jerusalem. So what does he say? Well, on the first day of each week. And what is the first day of their week? Any guesses? Sunday. It is now the holy day, right? That is Resurrection Sunday. It is the day for gathering and worshiping and praying and being together in community. And what he's saying is your generosity is an act of worship. It's connected to that. It's an act of honoring Jesus with what you have. And we are going to prioritize that. Just as you would sit down and prioritize at the first of this week, I'm going to spend my time with Jesus. I'm going to spend my time with my church family. I'm going to spend my time worshiping my God. How many of you, when you look at your week ahead, you sit down with your spouse or your kids or by yourself, and you're sitting there with your calendar, maybe your roommate, and you're kind of planning out your week, right? You don't do it midweek. You do it at the beginning of your week. You say, okay, well, Tuesday I got this, and then Thursday is baseball, and then Wednesday is this meeting, and oh, we got dinner plans on this, and hey, date night, all right. And you kind of look at your week and prioritize your week. Well, Paul's saying, just as you would prioritize your calendar, 
would you sit at the beginning of the week and prioritize your finances? And really prayerfully consider, how am I going to honor God with everything that I have? And the idea that generosity takes planning. Some people don't like that. We want to be spontaneous people. We don't want to be planners. We don't want to have to think things through. We want to just go, because that's how we live life. We just live. We don't like calendars. We don't like budgets. We don't like checkbooks. We just want to live. And Paul's saying at the first of the week, when we make it a priority, to say, let's sit down and look at what we have and prioritize how much of this is God. In our, ha- in our family, we have a very simple financial philosophy. It didn't take an entire book that I needed to read. It was very simple. It was three simple statements. Give, save, spend. But again, we had to learn this from people that we trusted, people that we admired, people that we respected. But it's a very simple financial philosophy that we're trying to teach our kids because This financial philosophy is not instinctual. What is our instinct when it comes to it? It's the reverse, right? What do we want to do? We spend what we have, we save what we can, and then we give whatever's left over. It's kind of what we grow up with. It's kind of this mentality of the American spending spree is, well, I spend what I need, right? I spend what I want. I give whatever's left over. And in the between that, I'm going to save whatever I can if there's something there too. But see, our, our philosophy is something that we've learned over the years that has helped us, my, us meaning my wife and I, and, and something we're teaching our kid, and something that we do even in our budget. If you looked at our spreadsheet, the very first thing, the first priority of our expenses is what goes back to God. It's the first thing on our spreadsheet. Let me just be honest. It's the first thing in April's spreadsheet because she's the spreadsheet person. But it's right there at the top the first thing on our church's budget. Did you know that? The money that we give back to our denomination is the first thing. Because that practice of giving and then saving and then spending. We practice this personally. We practice this corporately as a church, right? And, and it all comes to this idea. At the first of the week, we're prioritizing it. We're, we're saying that this matters to us. We're making a decision to do this. The other thing that we see In that same verse, if it's the first of the week, right? But he's saying on the first day of each week. So there's another P here. There's persistence. Generosity is persistent. It is continual. It is constant. It is regular. It is each week. Now, Paul isn't saying that everybody is going to collect those funds every week. But he's saying each week consider what you would be giving. And then at some point you're going to save those collections. Some of them might be giving monthly or quarterly or whatever. They're just stockpiling it, ready for Paul to return, and they're going to give it to him. But it's this idea of persistently. They are setting aside this priority. For something to really categorize, if I want to be known and and seen and, and develop as a generous person, it needs to be persistently a part of my life, doesn't it? Think about what we used to characterize our lives. If it's going to characterize our life, it needs to be a regular practice. I was thinking about this. No one has ever categorized me or characterized me as a yogi, someone who likes yoga. Why? Because I don't do yoga, right? So I am therefore, I didn't know this term, a yogi. I've never been called a yogi. I've, I've been told I sound like yogi, 
As in Yogi Bear, hey, boo-boo, you want a picnic basket? Thank you. I've been working on it for years. It's my God-given gift to sound like Yogi Bear, but I don't do yoga. So therefore, nobody who knows Sean would say, man, you're a real yogi, aren't you? You really love to stretch and open up your hips and do this thing. No, I don't. I hate it. I hate stretching. I don't do it. But if you knew me, what would you characterize me as? What? A cinephile? I love movies. I know movies. I watch movies. I talk about movies. I read about movies. I think about movies. There is a persistence to my love for movies, so therefore I am a cinephile, and that is also why I won my Oscar pool last week. Yes, that is true. Because there is a persistence to my engagement with this idea. So if I am going to be a generous person, it persistently is a part of my life. Not sporadically, not when it's easy, not when it's convenient, not when there's just a surplus, but it is something that is a consistent practice to my life. Verse 2 also continues on and gives us another idea here. Generosity is participatory. Verse 2, see, we haven't even gone off of this second verse. You should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. You should each do this. Paul is, Paul is not saying, hey, Corinth, I know some of you are poor, some of you are rich, some of you got some, some of you are middle class, some of you got extra. No, he's saying, you should each do this. I don't care who you are, where you're from, where your state is. He's saying, you need to consider, you need to prioritize, you need to consider how you're going to participate in this. He's talking to this church in Corinth, saying, you don't have to be in a, a certain financial bracket in order to participate. Because he wants everyone to be characterized as generous people. Not just the rich, not just the well-off, not just those with surplus. Not just those that have a passion for giving to the poor. Not just those that have an excitement to, to give their money away. It's for all of us to give. The reality within the American church, I found this stat. This is our reality. Only about 18% of American Christian church attendees give a tithe. That would be 10% or more of their income. Only about 18% of those who attend church regularly give a tithe. Which means the majority of the Christian church's generosity is coming from a minority of the population that attend that church. And this isn't meant to condemn or to guilt, but this is the reality that American churches function in is that when Paul says, hey, you should each participate, Paul's not saying 18%. Yeah, that's good. No, he's saying everyone should participate. We should all engage in this. We should all learn what it means to persistently prioritize being generous. But that sentence continues. Each of you should put aside what? A portion. So there is a proportionality, right? We give proportionately. That's the other one here. So it's not only a priority, it's persistent, it's participatory, and it's a pri uh, proportionate. You should each put a portion of the money you have earned. The thing about proportionate generosity is that it's not the same amount. And this is where we kind of get stuck on. I remember when I was in high school learning what giving was and giving back to church and all of this. And I remember like, 10% of $50 that I got for mowing a couple lawns didn't feel like much. 
and you almost hesitated to give it because I didn't make much compared to the other people in my church that I grew up with. But see, proportionate giving isn't about giving the same amount, but it's a similar sacrifice. Because to a high school student that only had $50, 10% of that feels like an enormous sacrifice. But see, it's not about the same amount. It's about similar sacrifice. And so Paul says, according to your income, according to what you've earned, according to what comes in. Now, Paul is not talking specifically and doesn't use the word tithe. We use tithe a lot in church. But he does emphasize proportionate giving. Proportionate giving. What is proportionate giving? Here's another stat I found. The reality of the American church is that American Christians give about 3% of their income to their church and other charities. So they group it all together. You take your income. 3% of the American income for Christians is going not only to their church, but also other nonprofits that they give to. So if you support like an animal shelter or you support, uh, uh, let's say there's another nonprofit doing human trafficking work or a food bank or all these different things, what this stat shows is that you take all of those contributions and it's about 3% of your income is going out. Proportionately, is, is, is that what we, do we give 3%? Is that what Paul means? Does Paul mean 10%? Does he want us to tithe? He doesn't say the word tithe. Does he want us to tithe? I mean, I give 20% when I get a good restaurant server, right? Or when it was my daughter's birthday party and we had 10 10-year-olds sitting there at Red Robin, uh, we gave 25%, right? Like, she did a great job dealing with that chaos, right? We were very generous with that. But how much do I give? See, that's a question that we wrestle with. And I, I've, I know... I've had that conversation with people. Well, tithing is Old Testament, so I don't need to do that. Well, what is proportionate? Paul says, put a portion of your money. Is it 3%, 10%, 20%, 100%? What is the percent? And I think what we need to do is look at our giving, look at our generosity through the lens of the gospel. To live and die by a tithe means I'm, I'm looking at my generosity through the lens of the Old Testament. The Old Testament pr- practice was to give a tenth. That's a tithe. So when you hear us say tithe, that's a tenth percent, a tenth percent, a tenth. It's an Old Testament principle of giving, right? You'd grow your fields, you'd give 10% of the best back to the temple. You had a flock of sheep, you gave 10%, and you gave it back to the temple. It was an Old Testament principle that God instilled in his people. And yet when we look at Jesus' teaching, he doesn't tell us to tithe. We look at what Paul says or Peter says or the New Testament writers say. They don't mention, hey guys, don't forget to tithe. Here's your giving statements. Don't forget your tenth. And I think it's because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he teaches us to look at our giving through a different lens. Don't look at it through the Old Testament lens of a tenth. Look at it through the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, right? Resurrected from the grave to bring us into wholeness with God. Forgiveness of our sin, amen. Our mistakes, our brokenness, we're restored into wholeness and relationship with our one true God. In order for that to take place, how much did Jesus give up? What percentage did Jesus give to make you and I right with God? A hundred. A hundred percent. Now, Hub City Church is affiliated with the Foursquare Church, which is Pentecostal by nature. 
So let me ask that question again, and, and let's give a little, you know the answer. You kind of mumbled it like at the library. How much did Jesus give in order to restore us into relationship with our God? There you go. You got it. You turned it up to 11. Very good. You turn, you're right. Spinal tap. Nobody. Okay. Never mind. Jesus gave 100%. He didn't give 3%. He didn't give 25%. He didn't give 10%. He didn't tithe his life. No, he gave it all. And see, I, I think when we look at our generosity, we have to look at it through the lens of the gospel to allow it to change the way we view generosity. Because when I live and die by giving a tenth and I look at my money through an Old Testament principle of tithing, I am going to fixate on that 10%. And when I get that 10%, what do I do with the other 90? It's mine, baby. I don't want to give that back to God because, God, you got your portion. Sure, I tip my waiter better than you, but, God, you got my 10%. Don't touch the 90. It's mine. I become like the Pharisees that Jesus interacted with which live and die by percentages. But Jesus didn't die on the cross by a percentage. He didn't die on the cross so that I would be devoted to him 10%. He doesn't want 10% of my heart. He doesn't want 10% of my life. He doesn't want 10% of my obedience, does he? 90% is mine, God. Don't tell me what to do with 90% of my time and my obedience and my vocabulary. He wants it all. Jesus gave 100%, and he wants 100%. He wants 100% of my heart, and he knows that my heart is tied to my money and my stuff and my truck. It is. Can we be honest? He doesn't want a percentage of my heart. He wants my whole heart. So when I look at everything I have through the lens of the gospel, I don't want to give God a percentage back. I want to give him an everything back. And so the idea of what Paul is saying of persistent and prioritized and proportionate giving, that proportionate of that 10% is not a live and die. That is not my ceiling any longer. I have learned through being pastored by other people that that is now becoming my floor. And we give more than 10%. And I don't say that to boast, but to inform you that what I'm doing up here or what I'm talking about up here, we do. We live these things out. I am not asking you to do something that April and I are not willing to do. But by giving that priority every month consistently, it builds that generosity muscle in me because it's a sacrifice. I could, I could use that money for a lot of different things, right? We all could. But it's that sacrifice, that persistent, regular sacrifice. And that 10% becomes that floor because eventually I want to be willing to say to Jesus, you can have it all. You can have everything. You can have the truck. You can have the house. Well, the house belongs to the church. But you can have it. You can have 100% of my time and my money and my everything because, Jesus, I want you to have 100% of my heart. So that practice of proportionate giving keeps me moving in that muscle. The last one is to procrastinate, or more importantly, don't procrastinate. I couldn't figure out a word. I think it started with a P other than procrastinate, but don't procrastinate. 
is what Paul says. In verse 2, just finishing that sentence, he says, don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Don't wait. And you picture Paul just sitting there with the Corinthians like, what are you waiting for? Why are you waiting? What's fascinating is he writes 1 Corinthians, right? This is 1 Corinthians. There's two letters. So a year later, we get 2 Corinthians. We don't know that because we just turned the page, right? But a year later has passed between these letters, and the Corinthian church gets the 2 Corinthian letter, and in chapters 8 and 9, he spends a huge portion of time, not four sentences. He spends two chapters talking about generosity. Why is that? Because they didn't get it. A year later, and the Corinthian church is still like, no, do we really want to do this? Uh, should I? Uh, what about? Uh, they procrastinated. And a year later, Paul has to send another letter and spend two chapters talking about it and saying, hey guys, we're called to be generous people. There's never a good time to start. We'll always have other expenses, always have other needs, always have something else we could do. There never seems like a good time to start being generous. And Paul asked, what are you waiting for? When is the right time to start? And that challenges me to think, what if we did start? What if you started this week, this month, this quarter? What, what if you did start rather than procrastinating? And that develops those generous that generosity muscle, that lifestyle of generosity through priority and persistence and participating, proportionate, and not procrastinating. But the idea of what we're talking about is putting Jesus at the center of my life, and it changes the way I live. Right? If I put Jesus at the center of my life, it changes the way I live. If I put Jesus at the center of my finances, it changes the way that I give. And so today may feel like, wow, that was really practical, Sean. Really nitty-gritty. Really into the details. Didn't always feel warm and fuzzy, but it got into the details. But it helps us see that generosity isn't going to be an act, isn't going to happen on accident. It takes discipline, and discipline is not a bad thing. Discipline and effort is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that we're saved by effort. Let's be very clear. Our ticket to heaven doesn't get punched because I, I gave enough or I was generous enough, or I worked hard enough. Discipline is not how we get into heaven. It's not how we are forgiven. It's none of that. But following Jesus, being a disciple, being made in the image, of, and, then, and, then, and then forming my heart to beat in the rhythm with Jesus' heart, well, that takes effort. That takes discipline. That takes growth and maturation. And I'm not a finished product. Nobody is. I still have a lot to learn. But we strive to be people who give 100% of our lives because that's what Jesus wants. He wants 100% of your heart. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, right now in this moment, right now in this moment, I just pray that you would, you would help us to be honest with you, honest with ourselves, 
God, I pray against shame. I pray against condemnation. I pray for those that have been hurt by the church in the past, felt manipulated by the church in the past, been uh, mistreated, misunderstood, judged, criticized. God, that is, as you know, that is not our heart. I pray that in these moments you, you help us to grow, to learn, to develop a heart like yours. Because Jesus, we want to give you our heart and our lives and our everything because that's what you did for us first. Heal the wounds of the past. Give us boldness to take steps of faith, to step out into something new. Help us to grow, to be more like you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening. 